There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet. Well, however you're watching or listening, we've got a show for you tonight because it's hard to keep up with the news as it develops. Increasing levels, new dimensions of absurdity, of atrocity are being reached across the world. Let me start with the absurdity inside the British Labour Party. Somebody called Rebecca Long-Bailey that nobody outside of Britain will ever have heard of, and hardly anyone in Britain has ever heard of. She was the left-wing Corbyn-supporting candidate, although supporting him as the rope supports the hanging man by the end. She was, if you like, the continuity Corbyn candidate just three or four months ago against the Blairite candidate Sir Keir Starmer, the British state's former chief prosecutor. What could possibly uh, go wrong? Uh, Anyway, she was heavily defeated, but given a consolation prize, a low-profile portfolio, they thought, as the shadow education secretary. Uh, Certainly, they didn't allow her to talk much about education, not least because she, supported by the teaching trade unions, thought that rushing our children back to school in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic was a bad idea. So they sent out other Blairite lieutenants to talk about schools more often than she was able to be. But then, unwisely, she retweeted an article from the independent newspaper uh, that's owned by the former KGB resident in London, whom I knew well, Know what I'm saying? He now owns the independent newspaper and they published a splendid article by an actress called Maxine Peake, a bit of an icon actually in left-wing politics in Britain, in which en passant she mentioned uh, that many US police departments were learning their brutal tactics in Israel where they were going, (laughs) not making this up, American cops going to Israel for training in how to subdue uh, a recalcitrant and, dare I say, occupied population. Now, this all had the benefit of being indisputably true. In fact, the Minneapolis Police Department boasted on their website about the training they had received in Israel. Uh, The virtual Jewish Library has given extensive coverage to this new practice of many U.S. police forces obtaining training in Israel. It is a matter of public record in Israel, in the Journal of Public Record in Israel, Haaretz, on umpteen occasions. And this was mentioned by Maxine Peake in her article, which The Independent published. And this was retweeted by Rebecca Long-Bailey, more, I think, as a tribute to her distinguished constituent, Maxine Peake. And within hours, she was sacked by Sir Keir Starmer from the Labour front bench. Does that constitute a purge? Uh, Without a doubt, because she was the last Corbynite standing on the Labour front bench in the shadow cabinet. And so, in just a few months, Labour has gone from having a Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell leadership, a Corbyn-McDonnell-dominated national executive, a front bench dominated by Corbyn and McDonnell, in just three months, to the complete opposite. Blairism is back. 
just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water. However, this poses a major problem now for Keir Starmer. First of all, because he defined what Maxine Peake said in this article, which by the way, the Independent, having published it, then congratulated Starmer for sacking someone for retweeting their article. So much for the uh, Western media, about which more later, I promise you. Uh, but the problem for Starmer is that the conflation of criticism of the Israeli police force uh, with Judaism as anti-Semitism is itself anti-Semitic. And someone has now tabled an official complaint in the Labour Party's complaints procedure accusing Keir Starmer of anti-Semitism. This one will run and run. The second problem is that Mr Netanyahu is next week, this week coming, going to rip up 50 years of international law, rip up the Oslo Agreement, rip up the absurdly named peace process and officially confiscate, bring into Israel the land that Israel has occupied on the west bank of the River Jordan ever since 1967, 53 years, a long time in anybody's lifetime. And so Labour members are now in a situation where they will be forced to remain silent about this atrocity that Mr Netanyahu intends to pursue against the wishes of every government in the whole world except the government of Donald J. Trump and Gerard Kushner. And so I'm asking in this poll, number one, is the Labour Party engaged in a purge? A, yes, B, no. You can vote now on my Twitter page. Uh, but it is a purge, and it is an invitation uh, to self-censorship, the arrow that flies in the night. You don't see it, but it reaches its target nonetheless. Labour members are now living under a reign of intellectual terror on the subject of Israel-Palestine. And how many of them are going to be purged if they step out of line? How many of them, my experience this week, rather a lot, are going to rip up their Labour Party cards rather than wait to be picked off one by one? So that's one of the subjects that we'll be dealing with this evening. Of course, the coronavirus crisis uh, continues apace in Britain. An average of 140 people die every day of the coronavirus. If 140 people died every day from a terrorist attack, well, it would be the biggest story in the country, but it isn't here because our government has declared effectively that the crisis is over, except that it isn't. The first wave isn't. Less than 10% of our people have caught the coronavirus yet, and 65,000 of us have died. As a result, do the maths. When 20% of us have got it, if 50% of us get it, and the death rates rise exponentially, well, we are in the mother of all public health crises. But you wouldn't think it. Uh, there's a march going on in central London right now for black trans rights, I think it says, though there are virtually no black people on it, and I didn't see that many trans people, none that stood out uh, anyway, but thousands of people in close proximity with no social distancing are out demonstrating in Britain again today. And half a million people, reportedly, crammed onto the beach at Bournemouth in the week on the hottest day of the year. I've no idea where they went to the toilet, but half a million people is a lot of coronavirus and a lot of litter and trash. So we'll be talking about what's next on the coronavirus with Ranjit Bra, doctor, physician, surgeon, uh, 
as always, in the third hour of the mother of all talk shows this evening. It's still rampant in the United States. In one state after another this week, figures of increases of hundreds of percent of cases is being reported. I work every night on RT America, and just before I come on, I hear the roundup. Texas, Florida, all kinds of places. Trump territory, by the way, is suffering vaulting increases in the number of people with coronavirus. But still, Trump pushes on. The heat didn't do what he said it would do. Uh, the uh, drugs that he's punted didn't do what he said they would do. But actually, now uh, the coronavirus may be the least of his problems. That and the collapsing economy in the United States is definitely placing a gigantic question mark now on his ability to be re-elected in November. The only saving grace for Donald Trump is that the man the Democrats have put up against him is a man that isn't fit to be let out alone and isn't allowed out alone. In fact, he isn't allowed out at all. He presumably scripted, delivers homilies into a camera in his basement, in his house in Delaware. Now, if he can get all the way to the election that way, he might have a chance of doing it. He hasn't had a press conference since he was chosen as the presumptive candidate for the Democratic Party. If he ever does have to face the press, and when he has to face the hundreds of millions of dollars of attack ads which the Trump camp are going to launch at him, he may crumble under the pressure. We'll see. But in any case, a new front opened up this weekend, and I have to deal with it in the next few minutes. After what seems like months of China being public enemy number one, suddenly it's back to Russia. According to the New York Times, confirmed by the Washington Post and the other major newspapers in the United States, the Taliban have been taking the ruble, taking the ruble from President Putin as payment for, bounty for, uh, the killing of occupation troops. No scintilla of evidence is offered. Uh, the stories are based entirely on briefings from inside the US intelligence community, with each newspaper speaking presumably to the same spooks and plastering it over their front page. And now, when I looked earlier before the show, uh, the charge of treason is being leveled again at President Donald Trump because they say he knew that this was being done and said and did nothing about it. Now, there are a number of problems uh, with this story. The first one is anybody who thinks the Taliban need Russian money to fire shots at American occupiers hasn't been paying attention to the history over the last nearly 40 years of Afghan history. They really know nothing about it. You see, the Afghan people have been fighting foreign armies on their soil uh, since 1980. And before that, centuries before that, were fighting every foreign army uh, that arrived in their country, uh, from Alexander the Great all the way to George W. Bush, not so great. They didn't require foreign funding to do so. It's stretching it a bit that they would require foreign funding to do it now. But that's not the only problem with the hypothesis. A bigger problem is that the Taliban are not killing American or British soldiers at all. There's a ceasefire. There's a peace process. The Taliban are fighting the puppet Afghan government forces 
not the foreign forces. Although the foreign forces are still fighting them from the sky. A third problem, and the biggest of all, is this. There was a foreign funder of the Islamist fanatics in Afghanistan, but it was not Russia. In fact, the Russians were the victims of it. It was the United States of America. I've just watched two brilliant interviews given by Hillary Clinton, no less, in which she describes in great detail how the United States poured money, materiel, men, propaganda into building up the Islamist monster in Afghanistan with the precise purpose of killing Russians. So this story turns on its absolute head, actually reverses the actual reality, uh, which is that the people who paid the Taliban, the people who paid Al-Qaeda, the people who paid ISIS, the people who paid every one of the alphabet soup of Islamist extremist organizations over the last decades was not Russia, which was actually fighting them on the battlefield in Syria while we were their air force and their chief propagandists. This Islamist monster is the creation of not Russia, but the United States itself. So, so much for governments and politicians, liars, almost everyone. But what does it say about the Western media? Every single one of which across the entire Western world has repeated this baseless, fact-free, idiotic charge against Russia today on their front pages and on their news bulletins. What it says is we don't have a free media at all. We have a collection of hired hirelings whose job is to be the stenographer of the power in the country in which they are operating, which is the exact obverse of what journalism is supposed to do and be, which might explain why Julian Assange continues to languish in Britain's Guantanamo Bay at Belmarsh Prison in South London. This is the mother of all talk shows. There's much more of this. This is the mother of all talk shows. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Rania Kalek is always a welcome and popular guest here on the Mother of All Talk Shows. She's a journalist, a TV presenter, a writer, and an all-round expert on what's happening in the United States. I'm glad to say she joins us now. Rania, welcome back to the Mother of All Talk Shows. You grace us with your wonderful uh, presence. Thank you 
uh, again for coming. Now, let's start with this insanity uh, that has swept the United States media, uh, in which it turns out uh, that the warlike Taliban were only prepared to shoot American soldiers if the Russians paid them to. Over to you. It's unbelievable. It's one of the most unbelievable stories I've ever seen. I mean, on Friday, uh, the New York Times broke this story that was so obviously planted by U.S. intelligence officials. They literally say throughout the piece, according to unnamed U.S. intelligence officials, over and over and over again, uh, saying that, you know, America, the, the Russians were giving out bounties to the Taliban to kill U.S. troops. It was like usual accepted as gospel by the rest of the American corporate media, and they've all been running with it, despite the fact that it's based on, you know, the the claims of unnamed officials, just like Iraq WMDs were based on unnamed claims of officials. And what's really fascinating about this is, like you mentioned, you know, as if the Taliban needed to be given an incentive, a monetary incentive to attack the Americans. Since the Americans invaded Afghanistan in 2001, there has been an ongoing uh, insurgency against the foreign occupier. Nobody needs to pay this insurgency. It's been ongoing. And what's even more interesting about this is in so many ways, it's projection. Because this is actually what the U.S. did in the 1980s. I'm sure many of your viewers you know, know that in the 1980s, the U.S., armed and funded a um, Islamic, uh, a bunch of Islamic militant groups, the Mujahideen, to try and uh, overthrow the Soviet-backed government in Afghanistan. Um, and so they were actually arming and paying Islamic militants in Afghanistan to kill Russian soldiers. So perhaps this is part of that projection is to turn it around and blame it on them. But then there's also the curious timing of this, right? Um, the fact that, that Russia is actually coordinating peace talks right now between the U.S.-backed Afghan government and the Taliban that's set to take place in Qatar, uh, that's, that's ongoing as we speak. So there is an agenda behind this sort of gossip um, that's being spread by the media right now, which is to sabotage those peace talks. And no one seems to be taking that in mind. Um, and there's also this other aspect of it where you kind of see an attempt to resurrect the Russiagate uh, hysteria uh, there's like an entire grifting apparatus in place of all these people who made lots of money spreading the Russiagate narrative, even though it was false. And now that that's faded away, this is another way for people to get back on TV and to sell their, their Russiagate books again, is to, to rev up this narrative. So there's all kinds of things wrapped up in this new story um, that so far doesn't actually have any verification to it. We have a kind of schizophrenia at work here. Uh, the, the right of American politics has gone completely bananas against China. Uh, mm -hmm. Kung flu, although it turns out actually maybe started in Barcelona of all places. The Spanish flu wasn't Spanish, uh, but the Kung flu might turn out to have been <laughs> Spanish. Uh, the right is berserk against China. And the so-called left, the Democrats and the liberal media, uh, is berserk about Russia. All the while, uh, your people are going down like flies with coronavirus, and your economy is going down the tube. And this is the most obvious national convulsion of look over there uh, that I think any of us have ever seen running. A hundred percent. And, you know, you and I, I, I've been on your show a couple times the last few months. And every time I come on, the coronavirus situation in the U.S. gets worse. And it's gotten so bad to the point where nobody even cares anymore. Uh, oh, you know, a hundred. I don't even know how many Americans at this point died. A couple weeks ago, it was 120,000. People don't even pay attention to the number anymore. We have more cases in a day yesterday than we've had since this virus started. Um, it's, it's incredible. It's the officials in this country have given up. They don't care. We're just where we don't have a wave in America. We've got this like tsunami that's just an ongoing, you know, the tip of the tsunami, the peak is just stays peaking. It's normal now. Um, and people are angry. People are also jobless. We have over 30 million people in America who've lost their jobs because of the uh, lockdowns from the pandemic. And, you know, a lot of those unemployment benefits are about to run out. And you also have this 
um, this mass uprising across the country against police brutality that took place over the past month, which is pretty unprecedented in the U.S., at least in my lifetime, uh, to see protests like this across the country. Um, so a lot is happening. There's like unrest in America right now, and there's more unrest on the horizon if things don't change. And rather than actually change um, the system of mass inequality that's only getting worse because of the pandemic as people are dying in mass, uh, what you see, I think, is what you're saying, an attempt from elites to also divert attention. And that's with the China hysteria and now the resurrection of the Russian hysteria. But, you know, something I noticed is that at the end of the day, Americans aren't falling for it this time, mostly because their immediate lives are impacted so deeply by the ramifications of this virus. They don't have time to care about Russia and China and what US, any of US intelligence officials are saying in the New York Times. They're more concerned about, am I gonna be able to pay my rent? Am I gonna be able to pay my mortgage? Is, you know, Am I gonna be able to send my kids back to school? Um, am I gonna have a job in two months? Uh, what am I going to do when unemployment benefits run out? Where am I going to? How am I going to buy food? These are the kinds of things that most Americans are concerned about right now. And the disconnect, I don't think, has ever been more um, severe than it is right now between American elites and and the general population. And in that extraordinary picture that you just painted, the Democrats have fielded crazy Joe Biden. How's he doing? <laughs> Well, you know, because Donald Trump is so reviled at the moment um, and because his policies have had such a negative um, impact, the, you know, his neglect over the coronavirus and just the way he's handled the unrest across the country with protests by, you know, being even more divisive and, pol and more polarizing, um, people, you know, are, he's actually lost a, a pretty big chunk of support for now. What that means for November, you know, we can't really make too many assumptions right now uh, based on what's going on and, and, and make conclusions about November. But as far as polls go, Joe Biden is doing better. But you have to, I mean, you have to take into account he, he's doing better than Trump because Trump is so awful. Um, you know, Joe Biden is, isn't, his, his, uh, he still has really high neg like negativity ratings. He's not the most popular person. But at this point, it's kind of like you could run my pinky finger against Donald Trump and it would pull better because of how dissatisfied Americans are with him right now. But I think there's something else interesting going on in the country as well as we just had some new uh, primary elections but the Democrats and Republicans, where people run for the, you know, the, uh, in the primary races for various uh, seats across the country for Congress. And in a couple of those seats, uh, the progressive challenger actually beat the corporate mainstream Biden-backed candidate. Uh, we saw that happen in, in, one of, in New York's uh, 16th district with Jabal Bowman against Elliot Engel. Elliot Engel is probably one of the most pro-war democratic neocons in congress um and he's been in congress since 1989 so that was a pretty big deal to see him unseated so i think you're going to see more of that going forward and i think that's where the more interesting stuff when it comes to elections is taking place uh between what's going on with the sort of more progressive wing of the democratic party versus the more mainstream wing uh but in the meantime yeah i mean trump is uh definitely falling in the polls and it's to the benefit of joe biden now uh let me press you on therefore his vice presidential pick, because uh, with a president inches from senility, <laughs> even if Biden does win, it can't be long, surely, before uh, Article 25 is triggered. Uh, poor old Joe is uh, described as no longer up to the job, and the vice president then steps in. Uh, who was that? Who would that be? Well, right now, people are talking about a handful of uh, names that keep being floated in the media, like Stacey Abrams and uh, Kamala Harris. Because of uh, the protests across the country against police brutality, uh, it's rumored that you know Joe Biden is looking to pick a woman of color, uh, which is great, right? It's, it's a big milestone to have a woman of color be vice president should Joe Biden win. However, he's, of course, going to pick somebody who's as corporate and as right-wing of a Democrat as he is. Uh, so at the end of the day, the policies won't change, but the face of those policies might. Um, so that's what we're looking at right now. We're looking at Joe Biden trying to use identity politics to appease the sort of progressive wing of the Democratic Party by saying, oh, look, I, I picked a woman of color. See, I'm, you know, I'm progressive too, without actually making any real uh, policy changes. But as for, I mean, I, I have no confidence that he's gonna pick somebody who's actually progressive. He'll pick someone like, Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris, which is 
You know, these are our corporate mainstream Democrats who are just like Joe Biden uh, with a different face. Uh, now, lastly, and I'm grateful for your time, the, uh, the protests and the statues that are being targeted uh, have begun, it seems, reading from here, uh, to become more provocative, more controversial, more divisive. The ultimate, perhaps, being uh, the attempt and the threat to destroy statues to President Lincoln himself. Uh, is that popular amongst the, uh, the protesting classes? Is there a division about this kind of thing? Is this going to run out of steam, do you think? There's absolutely a division over this. Uh, you know, it started a couple weeks ago and we saw Ulysses S. Grant uh, statue being uh, pulled down in San Francisco. Grant was, of course, the leader of the union or the, the general who led the union to the, defeat the Confederacy. So there are divisions within uh, protests about removing statues to people who represent the side that defeated the Confederacy uh, and defeated slavery. Um, and as far as the general population, I mean, the general population does is not supportive of the idea of taking out statues to people like like Lincoln. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, it is, well, it's nice to see, you know, uh, in the immediate aftermath to see statues to racists being taken down, uh, particularly when it's symbols of the Confederacy. I think this is really symbolic. And if that's what people want to focus on, fine. But I do think it, it, to a degree it does lose, um, it does take attention away from the systemic changes that we need when everything becomes about taking down statues and memorials. Um, you know, I'm not debating whether that's good or bad. It's just a matter of changing the names of things and taking down statues doesn't change you know, the funding, the, the level of funding and militarization of police. It doesn't change the racism and classism that plagues our system that leads to police killing uh, people of color, but also other poor people as well. That doesn't change by tearing down statues. So my concern is not necessarily about the statues coming down, but more about is this going to become the primary focus of these protests, which have a lot of momentum and have a lot of sympathy across the country, I certainly hope that's not the case. I really hope that people can, you know, keep their eye on the ball, which is actually changing the system that we have, rather than just making cosmetic changes uh, that make us feel good for a few moments. Rania Kalik, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us on the Mother Thank of All Talk Shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. He is the professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And I spoke to him a week or so ago uh, about the Black Lives Matter upsurge and so on. Uh, but I also took the opportunity, as he is a biographer of the great Paul Robeson, uh, to talk to him about the great man. I'm hoping to reprise that this evening if I have him uh, on Skype online. Uh, Dr. Gerald, thank you again for joining me. Uh, the, not that long has elapsed since I last spoke to you, uh, but the situation continues uh, to develop. Uh, and I'd like to, uh, as it were, test a couple of hypotheses uh, on you. Um, the movement, Black Lives Matter, and we know it's not a movement that you pay a subscription to and you get a card and, and all of that, but roughly speaking, the mass movement uh, that erupted uh, in the wake of the lynching of George Floyd uh, has run out of constructive steam, uh, has pulled down the uh, most offensive of the slaver statues, uh, but the turn to much more controversial and divisive emblems, even though a case could be made, I'm sure, for all of them uh, to pull down, uh, marks the beginning of the end uh, of the uh, current phase, anyway, of that movement. What do you think of that hypothesis? Well, I think it's premature to say and with regard to the tearing down of statues, I think that this is taking place in the context of a total rewriting and revisioning of the origins of the United States of America. And I'm happy to say I've been part of that process. 
That is to say that many are now looking with a jaundiced eye at the claims made in 1776 by slave owners that somehow they were in the vanguard of humanity. Recall it was your countryman, Samuel Johnson, who said at the time that he found it curious that those who were drivers of Negroes were always yelping about liberty and freedom. And I think that what has happened in the United States is that those who consider themselves to be U.S. patriots have oversold the history of the United States. They put forward a kind of immaculate conception of the formation of the United States, a creation myth. And at the same time, when you look at other revolutionary processes, they take a very one-sided view. That is to say, they don't have anything positive to say about the Cuban revolutionary process. They hardly have anything positive to say about the French revolutionary process. And so I think as a result, that has helped to generate this backlash, understandably, against the so-called revolutionary process that created the United States of America. Fair point, and I agree with every word of it. But what would be the message sent by pulling down the statue of Abraham Lincoln, uh, who, who bathed uh, the United States in blood in a civil war uh, to defeat the Confederacy and free the slaves. Well, I'm afraid to say that rethinking the sainted image of Abraham Lincoln is also part of this process of revisioning United States history. That is to say, he was trying to encourage the black men in particular to lead the plantations and join the United States Army so they could defeat the Confederacy. So once again, I think that the United States elite has overplayed its hand. On the one hand, it has denigrated every revolutionary process on planet Earth since 1776. On the other hand, it's tried to maintain this pristine and pure image of what's going on in the United States. And that's like trying to ride two horses going in different directions at the same time. It just won't wash. And now they have to reap the whirlwind. Well, uh, there's no doubt uh, that the whole concept of American exceptionalism uh, is, uh, is, is the original sin in your country, in my view. Uh, because, of course, no sooner had, for whatever reason, uh, Lincoln and Grant uh, defeated the Confederacy, they turned their armies uh, to go west and to complete the annihilation and expropriation of the Native Americans whose land it was in the first place. You are absolutely correct. And even under the government of Mr. Lincoln, you had one of the largest mass executions in the history of this bloody country. I'm speaking of what happened in the early 1860s when the indigenous leaders in what is now Minnesota were executed in mass because they were objecting to their land being taken. And it's oftentimes said that slavery is the original sin of the United States of America. I think that's a gross overstatement. The original sin was the invasion of North America, the seizing of Native American land, the liquidation of the Native American population, and then bringing enslaved Africans across the Atlantic. Until we reach that basic fundamental understanding, there will be no peace in this country. How does a country with two such original sins so livid uh, on, their, uh, on their record, uh, come to regard itself as the, the policeman, the judge, uh, the leader of the world? Well, that is the $64 question, is it not? I mean, it's like the thief yelling, stop thief. But I'm afraid to say that some of our friends in the international community have been a bit too credulous in their acceptance of these creation myths about the founding of the United States, about slave owners supposedly leading a fight for freedom and justice. Uh, that is not only taught in the United States of America, I'm afraid to say, it's a line that's taught all over the world. And I think our international friends really should know better. Indeed, uh, I had uh, myself a cause to visit the United States Senate uh, in 2005. It became quite a celebrity celebrated occasion. Uh, and there I was confronted by a people who quite clearly regarded themselves as princes, not senators, but princes. And it struck me then that for all this revolutionary and republican talk, uh, the ruling elite in the United States 
really does regard itself as rather royal. I think you are correct. I think it was the Irish patriot of the 19th century, Daniel O'Connell, who said that in 1776, when the rule of London was overthrown in North America, or at least in the United States, or what became the United States, that what happened was the replacement of a certain kind of aristocracy of lineage with an aristocracy of race. And I'll leave it to you to determine if that was a step forward for humanity. Certainly that's the line that's been taught to generations in this country. But for those on the receiving end of this poison dart, this was no leap forward for humanity. This was a great leap backwards. Well, we're definitely not going to take you back, uh, Professor. So uh, I discourage any uh, hopes uh, in that regard. Uh, you've uh, made your bed, your rulers have, uh, and you must lie in it. Uh, so how does it look now? Is Trump successfully weaponizing uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the statues and so on uh, into his preferred narrative of law and order? And if so, how do you think that's going to break in November? Well, it's too soon to tell. Keep in mind that you really can't take these polls seriously. I remember in November 2016, looking at the New York Times website, and up until about 15 minutes before the polls closed, they had Hillary Rodham Clinton winning the election. And then you refresh the page at 9 p.m. Eastern, and Donald Trump was declared victorious. So now the polls are telling us that Mr. Biden is ahead by double digits, but you have to keep in mind that many people are embarrassed and chagrined about admitting their support for Mr. Trump. Secondly, I think that even our friends on the left of the United States really underestimate the depth of retrograde opinion and attitude amongst the bulk, I'm afraid to say, of the Euro-American working class and middle class. And then, as your comment suggested, Mr. Trump is fundamentally turning the tables on the movement by portraying himself as the defender of law and order. And many are willing to overlook his defense of Confederate heroes and Confederate statues in that regard. Now, uh, the Russia gate is back. Uh, the uh, last three weeks or four weeks of uh, lashing China as the eternal and global evil uh, has uh, been uh, put to one side uh, for a little bit at least. And the liberal media today uh, has discovered that the Taliban uh, were really quite nice sorts. And all they were waiting for was the Russians to come along and give them some rubles, at which point they began trying to shoot American soldiers. Now, unless you've never heard of uh, the last centuries of Afghan resistance to foreign occupation from Alexander the Great to uh, Donald Trump the not-so-great, uh, you would know that the Afghans resist all foreign occupations and always, and that the only people who ever paid Islamist fanatics in Afghanistan to kill occupiers uh, were, were the United States government themselves in the 1980s, who gave them uh, a king's ransom uh, in money and material. Will this be another uh, successful attack uh, on Trump? Or do you think people have grown tired of unattributable uh, briefings from uh, unnamed intelligence officers? Well, I would say it's too soon to say, but basically what you've exposed is the fact that the Democratic Party, when it comes to foreign policy, in some ways is no better, in many ways are worse than the Republicans. What I mean is, is that it is the harebrained idea of the elite of the Democratic Party to confront Moscow and Beijing simultaneously. The difference with Trump is that they're willing to make nice with the European Union. I don't think that that's a winning foreign policy. In fact, I think it's a disastrous foreign policy. And I'm happy to, to hear that you brought up the 1980s because you rarely hear in this country any reflection on the fact that it was the United States government in the 1980s which helped to pump arms, stinger missiles, and all the rest to these religious zealots in order to weaken the former Soviet Union. They came to power and by 2001 attacked 
the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and apparently were trying to attack the White House as well with the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. So once again, I think that the Democrats are barking up the wrong tree. Recall that Susan Rice, the national security advisor under President Obama, after the George Floyd protests erupted post May 25, 2020, suggested that it was actually the hand of Moscow that was behind the George Floyd protest, which is the looniest idea since Looney Tunes and should have discredited her for all time. But you still see her making an appearance regularly on television. Would Susan Rice or Kamala Harris uh, be a step forward for black people in the United States if they became uh, the vice presidential pick? Well, I don't think so. And it's interesting that you mentioned Kamala Harris. Uh, of course, she's not only of South Asian ancestry, she's of Jamaican ancestry. Of course, under these peculiar and unique rules of the United States, that means she's defined as a black woman. But I do think that if she is selected as vice president, it'll have more to do with the other half of her ancestry. That is to say, the United States is very much concerned about recruiting India into the anti-China bloc. And I dare say that if Biden is elected in November with Kamala Harris on the ticket, she will be heading to New Delhi by January. Very interesting. Now, I haven't read your new book, uh, but I have read your old book. Uh, and it is, and I've read a lot uh, of Paul Robeson. It is the book on Paul Robeson. He was the first person inducted into the Hall of Fame of this show. Paul Robeson is number one in the Hall of Fame of the mother of all talk shows. Did we get that right? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, if there were any justice in this country, Washington, D.C. might be renamed Robeson City uh, because he was the tallest tree in our forest. Uh, he was an excellent athlete, an excellent singer, an excellent uh, football player, excellent actor, and a dynamic and dynamite political activist who was pro-socialist all the way and is that latter factor that led to his being sidelined, to his being, quote, blacklisted, unquote, in the United States in the 1950s, and with him dying ignominiously, according to the U.S. elite, in 1976 in a modest home in Philadelphia. Now, how did that happen, Professor? Uh, this man was once uh, this glittering world historic figure. And yet I bet that not many people in the United States or in Britain have ever heard of him. Sadly enough, it shows you the power of the propaganda machinery in the United States of America in particular. Uh, once again, they can make people all over the world, not least in this country, think a slaveholder's revolt was a great leap forward for liberty and freedom. And I think that that same propaganda machinery has besmirched the excellent reputation of one Paul Robeson, who really needs to be rehabilitated. And I think that that process is taking place. I understand that there is a movie now being made about his life, at least I hope so. And certainly we need to teach the younger generation about his sterling existence and his sterling career. Dr. Gerald Horn, best of luck with your new book and a pleasure, an honor to interview you tonight on the Mother of All talk shows. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Let me take a very brief break. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Leon says, brilliant from Professor Gerald Horn. What a guy. That statue is odious. You're in a hole. 
So stop digging, George. That's my job, my friend. Keep digging. Uh, Joanne says, after the slaves were freed, they were made economic slaves, and their battle is ongoing. And Nikki says, why are we looking backwards? And on YouTube, Johan says, Horn placed it correct. The statue should be in a museum with proper context. It is part of history untold. And Tomp says, great history lesson from the professor and George. And Syndicat says, the West always preaching to everyone about the rule of law, all the while violating and ignoring it at every possible opportunity. The West has gone completely rogue. Yes, we're the rules-based order, lads. And uh, on Twitter, Georgie says, the Labour Party is a toxic brand unfit for purpose. Got to start driving home, but I'll listen all the way. And in response to the poll, Lolly says, the last 40 years have been a purge. Kinnock in the 1980s, purging militant. It seems history is repeating itself again. Now, uh, Dr. Ranjit Bra is the Moats medic, and he joins me now at this uh, decisive, uh, maybe turning point, uh, and maybe not in a good way, Doctor. Uh, we are about to uh, see all kinds of things reopen uh, tomorrow. Uh, the roads are very much busier, as I can testify uh, this evening. Uh, the congregations of people are, are simply anonymous. Uh, I mean, they're, they're uh, mind-boggling. Uh, some of the scenes from the beaches, from the parks, and so on. It's hard to believe this is not all trouble uh, that's uh, going to come right down the pipe at us. George, thanks again for having me back with you. Uh, I, I concur with those statements, George. Um, uh, we've seen in the world there have been 10.2 million cases and uh, confirmed by testing and half a million deaths. In the UK, uh, we've had 311 uh, thousand confirmed cases by testing and as we've said before perhaps seven percent of the population only have been affected and we know that's forty three and a half thousand confirmed deaths across all settings according to official statistics but by excess mortality well in excess of sixty five thousand that we don't have precise figures day by day sometimes we see quite low figures for the number of infections but looking week on week really it's remaining very static george uh, hans klug uh, the European director of the World Health Organization has uh, warned this week uh, of increasing outbreaks across many countries and settings, including Sweden, Spain, Germany, as we discussed last week, which has an increase in its R rate uh, up to 2.8. And that was just associated with a few local outbreaks. Um, what we're still not doing well in this country is testing and tracing. And as a result of that, really, we're seeing a static number of of, of deaths currently. Uh, and as you say, a, a lifting of the lockdown implies that in, after a, the, the, the usual observed lag of two to three weeks, we're very likely to see significantly increased numbers again. But all, you know, if you just look at this week, we've had close to a thousand deaths and that's likely to go up because they, as we know, they, they um, are registered late and the numbers are always revised upwards. So really, we're not seeing decreasing numbers. And if you look at the, the, um, the rate of infection, it's around static in most areas of the country. So it's a problem at the moment that simply isn't going away, George. Now, uh, you and I said from the beginning uh, that uh, there was absolutely no certainty that this uh, virus even originated in China. Uh, and moreover, and I said it many times, uh, that there was more than one kind of coronavirus in circulation. Even in the United States, the virus on the West Coast was very different from the virus on the East Coast. Uh, and now we discover, having earlier discovered that in Italy there were cases last year, we now discover that at the beginning of last year, in water which has just been tested in Barcelona, we discover the coronavirus. Uh, so it could very well be that though the 1920 variant wasn't a Spanish flu, but has entered history as a Spanish flu, that this one, which is now uh, entered history as a Chinese flu, might actually have come from Spain. 
It, there are several candidates for where the virus has come from, George, and you're quite right. In fact, in, in October or November last year, uh, there have been cases of people in France who came down with a very similar, uh, at that point, undiagnosable respiratory uh, infection, uh, wasn't able to be diagnosed. Uh, the gentleman in question was a gentleman of Moroccan origin in Paris. He survived um, that, that infection, and but, but samples of his um, uh, of aspirate were, were kept and subsequently tested once that uh, test for COVID-19 uh, existed and shown that he in fact did have COVID. So there, there are several documented cases in France, in Spain, uh, and probably in the United States, though that, that data is unclear, of patients who've had COVID-19 uh, that predated the outbreak, which was thought to be initially the origin in Wuhan. And, and that's not widely appreciated, but there were people at the time, so there were Chinese scientists at the time who made it quite clear in the face of what was quite provocative and hostile propaganda from the United States in particular, that, that they said, uh, to quote their words, although this virus was discovered here, doesn't mean it originated here. And that's kind of logically unassailable. Uh, and it was even the Chinese foreign ministry, after insisting that, you know, they were doing their best to combat it, and international solidarity was the order of the day, that we needed to learn from each other's examples, share technology, and share information to help us combat it, that assigning blame was not helpful. That's clearly been the name of the game for Britain and the United States in particular, uh, but that's part of their broader global strategy, and has nothing whatsoever to do with this viral outbreak. Quite so, uh, but that would mean that the, the search for patient zero uh, in China uh, is barking up the wrong tree uh, because uh, this may have passed from the animal kingdom to humans all over the world uh, and much longer ago than the end of last year. Uh, the timeline's still not clear. I think uh, that the Chinese themselves, I mean, there, there were persistent calls again from, uh, particularly from Trump and from the United States administration uh, prior to the last uh, Congress of the World Health Organization that there should be some kind of international investigation. Uh, they mentioned at that time that they were looking for reparations from China in the order of a trillion, believe it or not, a trillion dollars. And they, Trump even mentioned in several interviews the possibility of cancelling China's uh, 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 stake in America's national debt, which runs to $1.2 trillion. So uh, failing that, they talked about punitive sanctions and other trade, escalating the trade war. So uh, China undercut that entire narrative by actually calling itself, uh, and, and, and Xi Jinping called for an international investigation, but insisted that it must be an impartial, objective investigation led by the science, led by the scientists, and not directed as the United States is very fond of having investigations that it directs. With, uh, and then the science, of course, has to follow its preconceived ideas and conclusions in order to meet its political ends. And I think that would serve certainly no one's interest other than a very small elite of very wealthy people, business people within uh, the US establishment. It's certainly not in the interests of workers in Britain or elsewhere. Dr. Ranji, thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows, our very own Moats Medic, Dr. Ranji Bra. Nikki is in Paris. Go ahead, Nikki. Hi, George. Hi. Uh, I'm calling. First of all, uh, great show. Um, I watch it every Sunday. I love it. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I'm just calling about um, uh, the press, the freedom of the press, and the DSMA system. Uh, I've been looking at that recently because I'm a supporter of Julian Assange. Yeah. And uh, since we've all been wondering about the media blackout and the media lies, I contacted the DSMA people. Um, for people who don't know what DSMA is, it's the Defence and Security Media Advisory yeah. we, Notice. We, we refer to it here as a D notice. Yeah. So it's also known as a yeah D notice. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I. I contacted them to get information about the notices they've issued 
in respect of anything published by Julian or um, WikiLeaks, and they wouldn't tell me, even though it's supposed to be a voluntary system. Mm. Uh, and then I discovered you're, you're going to have a good laugh because you said they're more like Austin Powers and uh, Mr. Bean. Mm. Um, you're going to have a good laugh. I found all that information on Wikipedia. <laughs> so for, for your viewers who want to see what sort of notices have been issued, they could go to Wikipedia uh, DSMA, and they will see a list uh, from 2000 and uh, between 2004 and 2005 uh, after the Iraq war. The first one that I came across there on Wikipedia uh, says that three blanket letters were sent to newspapers advising against publication of countermeasures used against roadside ambushes of British forces in the Iraq war. So it's it's been quite consistent since 2004. Um, then there was another one in 2009, another one in 2010, uh, specifically about the website WikiLeaks, uh, and then another one in 2013 about the US Prism, Sur Prism Surveillance Program, uh, another one in 2013 uh, over NSA and GCHQ leaks. So they've been concentrating quite heavily, another one in 2017. Uh, they've been quite active with yeah. DSM notices. Well, they have, uh, they, have, uh, <laughs> they have, uh, Naked. My first response would be, I would have been happy if the British media had imposed a blackout on the Julian Assange case, because that would have meant uh, that we would have been spared uh, the yes. ocean of filth and disinformation uh, about Julian Assange that we've been treated yes. to uh, in the British media. I don't believe that there is a D-notice on the Julian Assange case, uh, and here's why. Uh, you'll be familiar, perhaps, with the old adage, but not everyone will. Thank God you cannot bribe or twist the average British journalist. But when you see what unbribed he'll do, you realize there's no reason to. There's no reason for a D-notice uh, to get the British media to behave like Pavlov's dogs. Uh, they do that because they are. Uh, the scorpion stings because it's a scorpion. And the British journalist, with only a very, very few honorable exceptions, is quite happy to be a hireling, quite happy to be told uh, to micturate on Julian Assange uh, or on anyone uh, of a uh, hundred targets from uh, Tony Benn through Arthur Scargill through Ken Livingston through me uh, through uh, many many others and Julian being the most serious uh, seriously affected they're quite happy to do it it's in their nature mm -hmm. to do it so mm -hmm. there's no need as I say uh, to look for a conspiracy here uh, because uh, a conspiracy is unnecessary uh, I, I wasn't looking for a conspiracy. No, no. Uh, they have been issued. So, they have, I mean, sure, yeah. and they are a pernicious thing. But by and large, they're not necessary. Because they, our, they may not our, be media, necessary. our media is controlled by uh, the very lowest of people. I agree. I, I mean, agree. Just, you've seen the case this week of Richard Desmond, uh, the owner of a pornography empire and the Daily Express and the Sunday Express and the Daily Star until very recently. Uh, he's in a lot of trouble now on a corruption uh, case, an allegation of corruption involving a government minister. That's the kind of person uh, that owned and controlled uh, an important part uh, of the British journalistic architecture. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, don't get me started. Uh, on him. Uh, we can go through them all. Uh, they are, they are uh, reptiles, and so they behave like that. I agree, uh, but what is to be done? Ah. <laughs> that's, that's the question. Well, uh, something thing, has to be done. One thing that we can do, and you and I have just done, is expose it, talk about it. Uh, and we have done that, uh, I think, in uh, uh, a powerful way. Thanks very much indeed, Nikki, uh, for that call. I've only got a couple of minutes left. 
uh, concerned father says, does it matter? The social breakdown in the US is going to happen regardless. Which senile old man takes office? The president of the United States doesn't run the country. The broken system does. And Scott says, I voted yes. I think it's unlikely. But if it doesn't happen, then you'll have a serious problem, a revolution or reactionary change in the USA. And on Twitter, uh, Laura says, darling, gorgeous George. Well, formerly, uh, whatever makes you think Trump the buffoon is going to lose to the prevented sleepy, I think she meant perverted sleepy Uncle Joe. Uh, I'm not saying he will, uh, but on current polling, of course, he is going to. I've got time for one last call. Richard in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, good evening, George. Thank you very much for taking my call. I'll be as okay. quick as possible because you've had a great show on tonight. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I want to talk about um, Keir Starmer just for, just for just one second. I don't think, in my opinion, he has a hope in hell of ever becoming the Prime Minister. But because of the people at the back of him, they will push the, the, uh, uh, his narrative of whatever he does in the mainstream media because of their hate for Boris Johnson. And I'm sure that that is well established now. I'm sure millions of people in the country realize what is happening. But I don't think he will ever become a Harold Wilson. I don't think he'll ever become uh, a, a, a Prime Minister in this country to equal anything that we've ever had. I think he's too wooden. Uh, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I mean, ordinarily I'd agree with that, Richard, but uh, Boris Johnson is really quite unpopular now, uh, and even in his own party, and even amongst many Conservative voters. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility uh, that uh, Keir Starmer will be uh, facilitated in winning an election. But my point would be, what difference would that make? Uh, you'd have a somewhat interesting, jovial Burke uh, replaced by a block of wood, uh, but both of them following essentially the same policies. Uh, unless, of course, Sarkia is going to try and take us back into uh, the European Union. That would be a genuine difference, and one which would not uh, be to Keir Starmer's advantage electorally. Sorry that call was so short, Richard, but I literally have run out of time. I've only got 14 seconds to say for me. It's been marvellous. I hope it was also for you. And if it was, to come back next week at the same time, in the same place, and bring another listener or another viewer with you.